Good morning, Connect. Good morning. Happy Independence Day. You know, we live in the greatest country in the world, don't we? I'm convinced that God has had his mighty hand on the creation of our country. We're not necessarily going the way he wants us to, but his hand was on this country, and we are blessed to live here. We are completely blessed to live here. Amen. I'm glad to see all of you here this morning, here in Connect on a beautiful day, and to our online audience and cable viewers, we're so psyched to have you here with us today. I'm Pastor Mark, one of the pastoral staff. You know, God in his goodness scheduled me a while ago, I, I was scheduled to speak today, and the timing was perfect and in God's hands because Pastor Derek was called to go up and preach at a, an awesome church a little north of here called Excel Church that is just exploding for Jesus. Pastor Derek is bringing a little bit of a heavy lifting and encouraging word to them. So let's pray for Pastor Derek this morning, okay? Heavenly Father, we do pray for Pastor Derek this morning at Excel Church. We're so glad that you scheduled things such that he was available to be there. Lord, we just thank you for the great and mighty job that that church is doing, reaching people for Jesus. We pray that you would be mightily present in that service today and bring glory to your name. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So glad to have you here. I love that intro piece. I love the music. I love the artwork. We do a lot of cool things here, huh? That's, really, that's, that's an in-house production, which is even neater. Even neater, yeah. So we're in this uh, sermon series, What's the Difference? As we look at Christianity in the light of a variety of other religions or religious faiths. And today we are talking about Mormonism and Mormons, which is a really cool subject and great thing. And, you know, as we do it, I just, I think it's appropriate to make a couple things clear. And that is, this is not in any way about Mormon bashing or Mormonism bashing. Instead, we're just looking to uh, expand our, our theological understanding a little bit, you know, because we can say all sorts of genuinely great things about Mormons. You know, Mormons I know, they are really nice people. They're super nice people. Uh, they have a well-deserved reputation for being solid, moral, trustworthy people. You know, if I had to choose somebody for a neighbor, I might well choose a Mormon because I know they're going to be there when the chips are down. They are just super nice people. They have, Mormons have a serious devotion to God, or at least who they see God to be. Uh, a lot of them are so dedicated to their faith that right after college, they will go and spend a couple years on the mission field in some part of the world. If you look online, you can see videos of, of uh, Mormons opening the envelope, which is receiving their assignment for where they're going, and it's, a, it's an exciting thing. It's sort of interesting to watch. And, and lastly, you know, Mormons are not our enemies by any stretch. They are simply people who have been taught a variety of beliefs, not all those beliefs are, which are line up with Christianity, with biblical Christianity, but they're really good people. And so I just want to be clear that this is, not a, this is not Mormon bashing. It's really a critique. As your pastors, we want to at times make sure we're shining a bright light on some issues of theology, making sure that you feel equipped from Scripture and from general knowledge to be carrying forth your Christian faith into the culture and the community around us. Because thankfully, we interact with all different sorts of people. God has placed each one of us in different places with different neighbors, with different coworkers. I know that in my life, before I was a pastor, oftentimes I was the only Christian believer in my office. Once in a while I would think, Lord, it'd be really nice to have an office full of Christians. And I'd say, but you know what? These are all people that need Jesus. And I believe that God placed me here. And he's done that for each one of you as well. And so we want to make sure we can carry all this stuff in with us. You know, um, 
when I was little, I was sort of a TV junkie, as my wife will say. Um, it's, it's what she heard. And she also says that my mother babied me, but I don't think so. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I used to love watching on TV coming up to Christmas time. They'd have this special with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir appearing live from the big temple in Salt Lake City. And I loved it. I love this, this huge throng of voices, and it had the orchestra and this, have you ever seen it, this incredibly massive pipe organ that would create this tremendous sound, and they would sing Christmas carols, and I was young, and I believed in God, whatever that meant, and so I felt like I was one of them, or they were one of me, or whatever. We were sort of all in this together, and, and that's what I thought when I was a little kid. Several years ago, when we lived in Vermont, I was somehow got cajoled into acting as a chaperone on like a fourth or fifth grade bus trip. And I might have even volunteered for it, I'm not sure. But so, you know, and I don't know which is, which is the tougher assignment, being in a bus full of like nine and 10 year olds or doing what I did, which was intentionally going down and sitting next to a guy I knew who was a Mormon and prepping myself for a spiritual conversation with them. Crazy or not, I did both of them, and I survived, and it was great. But one of the interesting things that came, and so we had a very nice conversation for about 15 minutes. And the language that we used was sort of general spiritual language. We talked about the positives about this and about that. And over here on this side, over here, and then I straightened this up, and I headed down this path. And after about 15 seconds, he said to me, well, we really believe different things. And then he turned and looked out the window. And I thought to myself, he's right. We do believe different things. And he was gracious enough to try to say it in a nice way, but then made it very clear that he did not want to have the conversation with me any further. And so as we come into this sort of difficult task of talking about Mormonism, I think that what we want to do is create a little foundation, sort of four principles. And then following those four principles, we will answer three questions, three general questions, which will allow us to dig deep into Mormonism, okay? Does this make sense? Yeah. Great. The, the, the first point is, is that bringing clarity to something does not make Christians narrow-minded. Bringing clarity does not make us narrow-minded. You know, one of the hallmarks of the 21st century is this sense of the fact that we're supposed to embrace and encourage everything, aren't we? And unless we praise all beliefs and, and all attitudes and all actions, somehow we as Christians can end up being viewed as narrow-minded bigots. The odd thing about this is, is that most little kids, most elementary school students seem to understand that that doesn't quite fit together. How can everything be right and how can everything be perfect? Because sometimes things are contradictory. But yet that's what our culture is pushing us to do is to embrace everything. And, and one of the parts of that embracing is there's supposed to be this sense that um, sincerity is good. But what we want to say is sincerity is not a belief. Sincerity is not a belief. In the, and this certainly views the way our culture looks at religion. And oftentimes it gets summarized in the statement that it, it doesn't matter what somebody believes as long as they're sincere. Now, I sincerely think that's crazy. <laughs> and, and if you talk to Muslims or Jews, they will say the same thing. No, sincerity is not a benchmark of where truth is. Sincerity may be an attitude, but it's not where truth springs from. You know, if I go to a doctor and I have a rash and the doctor says to me, you have Lyme disease, I don't say to him, who are you to judge? 
Because I'm trusting his medical training. Now, I might say, so what are the symptoms that cause you to conclude that I have Lyme disease? And he'll quickly tell me that, how he's been able to come about that diagnosis. But now suppose a person that I'm talking to believes that sincerity is the most important part of spiritual belief. And I say, well, because of this or that, I don't think they're a Christian. They say, well, who are you to judge? The next question is, am I going to be able and equipped to respond to that critique that's been offered me? Because perhaps it's a fair critique. But I think that we can equip ourselves to look at that very thing for two reasons. And the primary reason being is that we need to understand that we have to hold shared definitions. Because so oftentimes when we have spiritual conversations with people, we use these general words not knowing if people are meaning the same things that we are. They may be thinking, for instance, that a Christian means somebody who believes in God and who lives by the golden rule of treating others like you want to be treated. Uh, That person may have no biblical knowledge. They may never read their Bible, may never attend church. But our culture of our country suggests that we're all Christians. So they say, yeah, well, I'm a Christian. But we say, well, you know, but actually I believe this and this and this. And so, no, I see that we're not on the same level playing field because we have different definitions for the same word. There's some recent polling information that bears this point out. The Gallup polling organization, this big national group, you've probably heard of them. Back in December, a year and a half ago, they did a survey of 175,000 Americans trying to determine spiritual beliefs. And in the process of that, they allowed people to self-identify where they stood spiritually. And in the process, 75% of Americans labeled themselves as Christians. There is a Christian polling organization that spun off of Gallup, and their name is the Barna Group. And they, several months later, went and did their own polling of a little smaller subset of people. And rather than letting people self-identify into categories... Instead, they ask questions about behavior and thought. And from those answers, then the Barner Group was going to plug people into different categories. In the process of doing that, the Barner Group discovered that at least half of Americans are what they would consider to be post-Christian. They were no longer Christian believers by any sense. And it had to do with with comments that they made. Those people said things like, they disagreed that faith is important in their lives. They had not prayed to God in the last year. They had never made a commitment to Jesus. They did not believe the Bible was accurate. They had not donated money to a church or attended church in the last year. They felt no responsibility to share their faith. So from all these things, they said, wow, the definitions we see here are very different uh, that people are using. And the Barna Group made that very clear to us. And so therefore, we have this question about who is a Christian and how are people identified and how are they described as Christians? And so when we're talking to somebody who says, who are you to diagnose this way? That's the first thing we have to understand. And the second thing we have to help them to understand is whether we have the chops, whether we have the data, the knowledge to be able to make any sort of a diagnosis. And that's what I, what I want to equip all of you to be able to do through an evaluation of Mormonism as we continue on from today. So I think there are really three big questions that we can use to identify Christian believers. And we can evaluate whether a person's a Mormon or whether it's a religious sect, something else. We can use these same three questions all the time. The first is, what is this person's book of faith? Secondly, 
what, who do they say Jesus is? And third, how do they say a person obtains eternal salvation with God in heaven? Because we have very clear biblical understandings of that. And so the question is, what does somebody else view in that same area? You know, last week, Pastor Derek talked a little bit about uh, um, the Protestant Reformation in his analysis of Protestantism and Catholicism. And he talked about Martin Luther, who was involved in the Reformation, and Martin Luther's focus on sola scriptura, looking only at the Bible as a reference point for how we learn about Jesus. Within Protestantism, with Catholicism, they also pulled in from the side uh, uh, um, tradition as a way of describing and understanding who God is. So we want to start with this very issue with Mormonism. And, and, but this is a, a fundamental issue. And um, just as a little aside, when we lived in Vermont, I, I've told you before, we, we had farm animals. And we had some pigs. We had the pigs done in one day. And this guy came to do it for us. And he was salt of the earth from the hills of Vermont. And he's got these bib overalls on. They're not clean at this point in time. And I'm chatting with him. And he is sitting, he's kneeling by this little tray. And he's got this, he's got this pig. And he's slicing away. And I'm talking to him. I said, I'm a Christian believer. He says who he is. I'm a Christian believer too. At which point, he holds up this knife, this big saber. And he says, do you mean to tell me that you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Now, maybe if I didn't believe, that would be a good time to say it. <laughs> but I did. But he was doing that same thing. He was trying to discover, okay, what does this person really believe who is claiming Christ? You know, when we look at Mormonism, it's, there's a fascinating history to Mormonism. Mormonism is younger than our country, and it didn't, really, and it didn't start much before the Civil War. There was this man named Joseph Smith in 1820 from a town in Vermont, the town of Sharon, Vermont. Now, when I lived in Vermont for 20 years and Julie there for 30 years, and it was maybe a half an hour from where Julie had grown up there, the town of Sharon is this. It's a hilly, rocky place. It's not very good agricultural land. If you were a farmer in Sharon, Vermont, you're not growing vegetables because that soil is not good. So you've got sheep grazing on the hillside. And it's not a place where you're going to get rich quick. Yet, Joseph Smith, he had a spirit of adventure and he had a desire for wealth and the easy way. And both he and his father were well known as treasure hunters and swindlers. Somebody shared with me earlier this morning that their mother, his mother was a fortune teller of some kind. Uh, such so that uh, um, in the mid-1820s, Joseph Smith was arrested and tried in New York for using what's called a peepstone, a mysterious rock that was supposedly going to tell him where treasure was buried. And this is a practice that Joseph Smith was well known for. It's interesting, as a little historical aside, that if, if, you, that if you know Sharon, and you know that it's a, um, it's, it's a place of sort of some economic poverty. And in the 1860s, at the start of the Civil War, Lots of Vermonters, lots of young men from Vermont joined the Union Army, as they did from various states and different towns, and traveled with the Union Army down south and further out west. And the mid-19th century was not a, a time of extensive travel, especially if you were sort of a simple farm boy from the hills. And so these farm boys went, and they had their eyes opened to the world of America, including the rich agricultural soils of the south and the Midwest. And the war ended... They went back home, 
and kissed their mother goodbye, and they went somewhere else again. They went back to these great places they had seen because they understood how difficult it was to earn money in the hills of northern Vermont. That's where Joseph Smith came from, and that's like the, the foundation of what we should be thinking about him as we're looking at this. So we have this, so we have Joseph Smith. And in 1820, he claimed that God the Father and Jesus Christ appeared to him, bodily appeared to him, and told him that he was the one who had been selected, and he, it was going to be his job to reestablish the true Christian faith in America. Three years after that, he, ex- he claimed that he was visited by an angel, an angel that either had the name Moroni or had the name Nephi, and that he told Joseph where to go into New York to find a series of golden plates that had been buried. Joseph claimed that he went and he found these plates, and when he pulled them out, there, was, there, was, there were inscriptions on them, inscriptions that he could not read. He understood them from the angel that they were reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics. And the angel said that uh, he had written that information on the plates and he'd been able to do it because the angel had a case, a, a pair of magical spectacles. And he was going to give Joseph these spectacles so when Joseph put them on, then he could translate the plates into English. And it's from the translation of, this, of these plates that sprang the book that we refer to as the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon, so the plates were really history. The plates were history of the early, of early America before any of the settling of America that we think of and talked about two ancient civilizations who both traveled and settled in America. The first civilization was completely wiped out and the second civilization became American Indians. Mormons hold that book, the Book of Mormon, to be a special revelation from God, equal importance to the Bible. And if we want to put ourselves on a timeline, so that was 1830, so right around that same time, then Joseph Smith and a small group of his friends went and established a new religious society, which is called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So that's what sprung um, Mormonism. And that book, from the, the, the Book of Mormon, And the translation, it was claimed that the person who told all that information was a man named Mormon. And so that's where we get the word Mormon. So we had these two books, and we've got the Bible, and we've got the Book of Mormon. And the following 13 years after the publication of the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith claimed that he continued to receive special revelations from God. And so he wrote these down, and these became a book known as the Doctrines and Covenants a book that continues to be edited by Mormons to this day. But that was this third book that Mormons looked at as a book of faith. And then there was a fourth book entitled The Pearl of Great Price. And The Pearl of Great Price, amongst other things, contains Joseph Smith's descriptions of the angel Moroni coming and visiting him and all that led him through this whole process. But there are other components to The Pearl of Great Choice as well. All of these things that were translated into English and assembled by Joseph Smith. Now, this book, The Pearl of Great Price, this supposed revelation from God 175 years ago, has been edited and changed multiple times over the course of the history of the Mormon church. Amazingly, if you go on to the Mormon church website, they come right out and describe the fact that these changes have been made to quote the website. 
several revisions have been made in the contents as the needs of the church have required. And they also say, in the present edition, some changes have been made to bring the text into conformity with earlier documents. So we see this shift over time about the content of this book that is one of their principal books of faith of Mormonism. You know, the Bible teaches us there, there are two kinds of revelation that God has given us. The first is general revelation, which is about God's existence through nature. Romans 1.20 states, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. In other words, God's saying, from nature, you know that my existence and my character is real. That's general revelation available to all people, wherever you are in the world. You don't have to, have it, you don't have to be able to read nothing. You, can, you know of God's existence simply by nature. The second kind of revelation that we know from is special revelation, which is the Bible, which is God's word. The beginning of, uh, of 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God-breathed, meaning it comes straight from God. It proceeds from God's mouth. And Revelation chapter 22 makes it clear that we should neither add nor subtract any words from the Bible because God, it is God's full revelation for us. So that's why Christian believers look at the Bible as the only source of revelation from God. There's nothing more. Mormons will typically tell us that they agree with the Bible, that, but that as Christians, we just don't know all the truth like they do because we don't read their other three books of Revelation. Billy Graham, the great evangelist, was well known for when he was doing his crusades, he would constantly preface sections he was gonna say by saying, the Bible says, he would say something. The Bible says, he would say something. Because every time he wanted to be constantly referring people back to the Bible, because that was the big single source of truth. You know, for Mormons, in addition to having these four books that provide them theology, they also get revelation from what they call prophets. And these prophets speak actually with greater authority than those four written words. Mormon prophets include all former presidents of the Mormon church, including the current president. And some people will say it also includes what is essentially their board of directors. And so these prophets have a uh, when we think of Old Testament prophets, that they are speaking with revealed wisdom from God. They claim that these prophets speak with God's special revelation. In 1980, their then president, so 35 years ago, President Ezra Taft of the Mormon church stated, prophets are above scripture and the living prophet is more vital to us than the standard works, meaning the four books. And the living prophet is more important to us than a dead prophet like Moses or David or Isaiah. So I can't stress for you the fundamental and the huge differences that this suggests between Mormonism and Christianity and why we, really, why we can't consider Mormons to be Christians. But here's an interesting thing. I'm told that 90% of Mormons consider themselves to be Christians. Why is that? Because they read the Bible, because they, lead, they believe in Jesus. They believe that Jesus died on the cross. So they, they share this portion of a belief set with us. So as far as they're, con they're concerned, they're Christians. When we take a step back and shine a light in there, we say, 
Yes, but you do all these other things too. Again, it's just like the unchurched populace of this country, 75% of whom view themselves as Christians just because we're in a Christian culture, okay? So I just want to make clear. So, uh, um, and, and if you come from a Mormon background, if you currently are Mormon, um, I just want to make, make that piece clear to you that we're, it's not that we're disparaging what you're thinking. We're, we just want you to expand and understand more about what it is that you've heard. These four books within the Mormon faith are full of contradictions, which is an historical artifact, really, because Mormonism was founded in, in the age of writing and printing presses, etc. already. Everything that jo Joseph Smith and later prophets and presidents said was all recorded for us. And they quickly saw that there were pieces that were out of place that didn't match up, and so there's been this... Uh, um, uh, this continual effort within the church to merge everything together in a way that makes sense. And there are even books that are written from outside the church shining a light on these contradictions within Mormon faith. As an almost entertaining aside, I want to tell you nine things that Mormons hold to be true. And when I describe these things to you, I'm not saying these things in a mocking sort of way, but I'm wanting you to understand the distinctions between Christianity and Mormonism. And each of these pieces, we could look to the scripture for, for uh, um, uh, um, a conflicting statement of truth. So the Mormon church believes that the universe is governed by a head God and his council, all of whom worked together to create mankind. Secondly, Mormons believe that God has goddess wives. They believe that God is named Elohim and he lives with his many wives on a planet near the star named Kolob, K-O-L-O-B. It's there that God and his wives produce billions of spirit children who need human bodies to go into. This makes, we can relate this just easily for us all. My wife and I, we have a big family, but you know, most, we're not Mormons. You know, a lot of Mormon families, you know, they have big families, right? You know why? Because they believe there are these spirit children that are floating around out there who need human bodies to come into. So they need to have children so those spirit bodies can come into them. That's why Mormon families are so big. Five, Mormons believe there are many gods. Mormons believe that Jesus and Lucifer, or otherwise Jesus and Satan, are brothers, Mormons believe that Mary was not a virgin. Mormons believe that Africans, African Americans are cursed and inferior and lack the full blessing of God. And Mormons believe that if people live well as Mormons, after this life, they will become gods themselves. Not a person in the presence of Jesus, but a God themselves. As I said, each of these statements is in direct contradiction to Scripture. And they're gathering this through all these different books and these prophets that Mormonism rely on as their sources of faith. You know, if a person's understanding of truth spiritually comes from a variety of sources rather than just the Bible, as Christians, we should be saying, time out, because as Christians, we believe just this one book. So that's his first big question. What are, the, what are the books that Mormons look to for their source of faith? Our second question is, 
Who do Mormons say Jesus is? Now, I gave you this brief reference that Mormons believe that Jesus and Lucifer were brothers, which is in direct contrast, of course, to the beginning of the book of John, where we read about Jesus and John the Baptist and what John is saying about Jesus. First three verses read, In the beginning was the Word, with a capital D, which is referring to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. The Bible teaches that Jesus is eternal, that he's God, and that Jesus did the creating. Mormons don't believe that. You know, oh, oh, we believe that Jesus was first, and the angelic forces angelic, were all created later. Jesus and Satan are not on par. Satan was one of the created beings. And if we, if we fast forward which I love, to, the, to Revelation chapter 20, 22, and the battle of Armageddon is coming, and we see this mighty, innumerable army has gathered together to fight against God's children. What happens then? The text says, and then God rained down fire from, from earth and destroyed them because the dichotomy in their power is so great. This is God, and this is every, the rest of creation. Jesus and Satan are not brothers, and they are not on the same plane at all. Mormons believe that based on their multiple books and their prophets, that the council of gods had met and decided to build planet Earth as a place where the spirit children could go get their mortal bodies. But they would need to learn to distinguish between good and evil. So somebody needed to be sent to Earth to teach good and evil. And both Jesus and Lucifer wanted that job. Jesus was selected and that made Lucifer irate. So he gathered a third of the rest of the angels and they went to war against Jesus on earth. That's where, that's what Mormons believe. Additionally, and amazingly, Mormons teach that Jesus was married and he fathered children from three New Testament women, Mary, Martha, and Mary Magdalene, and that Joseph Smith is a direct descendant of one of them. To Mormons, Jesus is not the eternal God of the Bible who saves those who seek repentance through him. He's somebody different than that. And this directly leads to our third and final point, which is, so how do they say a person obtains eternal salvation with God in heaven? You know, the Bible, the most well-known verse of the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In addition, as Christians, we know that it's not our works in any way that provides us salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 reads, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourself it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. doesn't matter the good things you do. Good, 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 good. None of that saves us. It's only by faith in Christ that we can be saved. Mormons, on the other hand, believe it's a combination of things. Eternal salvation is obtained through uh, faith in Christ, through the martyrdom of Joseph Smith, and through the Mormon church, since they are the only one true and right church in the world. Amazingly, they believe that Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, will be the ultimate and final judge. Quoting Brigham Young, one of the early presidents of Mormonism, no man or woman in this dis dispensation, means this time period, no man or woman in this dispensation will ever enter into the celestial kingdom of God without the consent of Joseph Smith. 
from the day that the priesthood was taken from the earth to the winding up scene of all things, every man and woman must have a certificate of Joseph Smith as a passport to their entrance into the mansion where God and Christ are. The Bible teaches that there are two different destinations and that we get to choose where we go, right? We can choose to place our faith in Jesus Christ, asking him to forgive our sins and to go the way he wants us to live. And we have a promise that our eternal destination is with him in heaven. If we choose not that, if we want to reject that, we don't want that. The other possibility is we are eternally separated from God in a place that the Bible calls hell. Two choices, stark choices, and we get to make the choice on our own. And it's a simple choice to make. Mormon theology is much more complicated in this area. And it attaches back to the, uh, the, the, uh, the two early civilizations of this world and how things were pulling together in the translation of the tablets with the special glasses. But they believe that there are three possible eternal destinations. Those who have followed Mormonism, who have actively participated in the Mormon church, in teachings, and were sealed in an eternal marriage covenant in the temple in Salt Lake City, those people will go to the celestial kingdom where they will become polygamous gods ruling over the planets and spawning new families throughout eternity. Ever noticed when other religions talk about this polygamy thing, it's always the guys who win, you know? I always think to myself, if I was a woman, how would I feel about this? Oh, yeah, it's polygamy. It's like, no, it's always the guys who win, right? And, um, and so, but that's what they say. So that's the celestial kingdom. If you've been a good Mormon and have done these things. Nominal Mormons or, those who, or other people who are good people and live by the Ten Commandments, which would include us, we will get to go to a good place, but not quite as good. And that place is called the terrestrial kingdom. Thirdly, most of humanity, those who have done wrong, those who are not good, not followed the Ten Commandments, will go to a place of punishment called the telestial kingdom. Mormon belief about eternity is radically, radically different than Christianity. As I said, most Mormons view themselves as Christians and they want to be accepted into the Christian, into the sort of American mainstream as though they are part of the Christian church and they are perfectly allow, willing to allow other people to define them as Christians. Although, as I described my earlier bus trip with Brian, he understood, and he was sort of high up in the church in Vermont, he understood quite distinctly that he and I did not believe the same things, that his set of beliefs was different. When we pack, get all these things together, we package them all together, and we take a step back and evaluate Mormonism in the light of Scripture and the things that Mormons claim, we can actually get ourselves quite quickly to a point where we label Mormonism as a cult, which, has, which is a reference to how they stand in terms of biblical Christianity. Because there are six things, really, that, Mormons, and that Mormonism does. Mormonism humanizes God. It deifies man. It minimizes sin. It alters scripture. It uses different uh, definitions to define words that we know. And they consider themselves to be the only true church. So where do we go with this? The first thing we say is that, you know what? Mormons need Jesus. They need the Jesus of the Bible. Not a Jesus who's been sort of adulterated by a whole bunch of stuff orbiting around. Just the plain and simple Jesus is a Bible. You know, it's such a blessing 
God makes it easy, doesn't he? He's clear. God didn't make Christianity and Jesus to be a complicated thing. He made it to be super easy. Just like other people we know who, aren't, have, who don't know Jesus, there are a lot of Mormons that need to be clarified who Jesus is so they can step in close to that great relationship. You know, maybe that you find yourself, you have a Mormon as a next door neighbor, uh, that you work with Mormons, that you interact with them on a regular basis. And so hopefully through this, God is equipping you to be able to talk to them a little more carefully with a little more level of detail or data so that you can help them to understand why the Jesus that they're worshiping is not really the Jesus that lines up in the Bible. And Jesus says, he's, Jesus is a big tent. He wants everybody just to come in and embrace him for who he is. And I'll say, I'll say one more thing for, for anybody listening who is a Mormon. And I get this piece that it's scary for you to think about leaving the Mormon church because you have a tremendous sense of family and community in your church, don't you? And you might be thinking, I want that Jesus, but I want this other package over here of community. I just want you to know that this package of community is available over here as well. In this church and a lot of other churches where there, there is a great sense of community, of love, of friendship and fellowship and family. And so don't let that prevent you from stepping in closer to Jesus. Let's stand and pray. And we're going to pray for two things. We'll pray for those who are, who, who, for Mormons and Mormonism around us. And then I'll also give you a chance to respond. You may have heard something about Jesus this morning that you are not familiar with. You're saying, wow, I never realized it would be that easy for me to step closer to Jesus than it is. So let's bow our heads and pray. First, we're going to pray for Mormons. Heavenly Father, we thank you for placing us around, scattering us through towns, villages, different places of work, different social circles. And Lord, uh, we pray for those around us who are Mormons, who we know can have a much richer and clearer and more rightly relationship with Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would work on their hearts and open them, take the scales off their eyes and open them to the truth of Jesus. Help them to set aside all this other stuff that entangles them. And Lord, help to use us as your conduits of love of Jesus. And help, to help them to see a different place where they can land, a different place where they can plug in and find community. Lord, help them to know the goodness and rightness and purity and clarity and oneness of your word. And while all heads are bowed and all eyes are closed, if you're here this morning or if you're listening online and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I want to welcome you in to him because it's so easy and so good and so right. And you have the promise of Jesus walking with you in this life, which is not always easy. And you also have the promise of a great eternity with him in heaven. All you have to say is a simple prayer of asking him to forgive your sins and helping you to go the right way. And if that's something that you want this morning, I just ask you to slip up your hand good and high so I can see it through these bright lights. Slip up your hand good and high. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I see your hands. That's so awesome. You know, the Bible tells us the angels in heaven rejoicing. Thousands of angels are rejoicing in heaven when one person gives their life to Christ. I thank you so much for raising your hands this morning. So let's just, church, let's all pray together these just some simple words. It's not the words that are important. It's the attitude of our hearts. Let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, Thank you for sending Jesus down to live here on earth with us. I know he died on the cross for me. Please forgive my sins. Help me to go Jesus' way, not my selfish way. 
We pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen and amen. Thank you so much for being here this morning.